Would you turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 4? Judges chapter 4. In this book, we've seen that God is the exclusive deliverer and He delights to use weak and flawed people to accomplish His purposes. God is the exclusive deliverer and He delights to use the weak and the flawed to accomplish His purposes. So far, we've seen him use Othniel, a capable warrior, but with a, uh, an apparently small army. We've seen God use Ehud, a left-handed man, through his cunning acts to destroy Eglon and his people, Moab, the Moabites. And we've seen God use Shamgar with an unlikely farm tool to kill 600 Philistines. Tonight, we'll see that God, again, delights to use weak and flawed people to accomplish His purposes. And tonight it comes through two women and a man. So I'm going to read Judges chapter 4 for us, the main part of the story. Judges 4 is the story of God's deliverance through Deborah. And then chapter 5 is the song of God's deliverance through Deborah. So we'll just read chapter 4 to start with tonight. This is the Word of God. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had nine hundred iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for twenty years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali, And from the sons of Zebulun, I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaanaim, which is near Kedesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. 
But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. From there was peace between, uh, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent. It shall be if anyone comes and acquires of you and says, Is there anyone here? That you shall say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. God, again, delights to use unlikely people to accomplish His purpose. His, he, he delivers His people through unlikely means. And so, as I mentioned, there are two sections to what we're going to look at tonight. First, the story of God's deliverance through Deborah. And then second, the song of God's deliverance by Deborah or through Deborah. Deborah, I believe, is the writer of this song that, that we're going to see in chapter 5. So first, the story of God's deliverance through Deborah. hope you noticed at the beginning our recurring cycle that we have in the book of Judges. starts out with evil, verse 1, where God has forgotten the sons of Israel again after Ehud died, did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a recurring theme, and we know from chapter 2, verse 19, that the evil is more corrupt than it was before. So as they go through this cycle, they just become more and more corrupt. And as a result, God seeks to wake them up because He's a jealous God and He deserves and demands exclusive worship because He is the exclusive deliverer. And so to show them that, He allows them to go into, into, I was going to say depression, but actually oppression. And this time it's by the king of Canaan, by the Canaanites themselves. Prior to this, it was it, it was uh, the the oppression came from outside of Israel, right? The Moabites and the uh, the Philistines and Mesopotamia was actually the first one there with Othniel, and so you have these groups of people that are outside the land of Israel. Now you have these people that are living inside of Israel that are starting to oppress Israel. This enemy had a king by the name of Jabin, we learn in verses 2 and 3. And he had a commanding officer named Sisera. And this commanding officer was pretty successful. He had an army with 900 chariots, iron chariots. And this would have been a, a significant advance in technology for the purposes of battle. And could have, would have given them a, a Goliath-like advantage over 
even a group of 10,000 soldiers from Israel. And we're told at the end of verse 3 that they were oppressed, that Israel was oppressed for how many years? For 20 years. See that at the end of verse 3? And so what do they do? The first part of verse 3 tells us that they cry out for help. So we have this cycle again. They do evil. God is forgotten. And then they're oppressed. God is jealous. And then they cry for help. God is remembered. And then finally, verse verses 4 through 24, God delivers. God is the deliverer. And this time, God delivers through an unlikely means, through a woman, someone who was not looked on with great favor in their society, with great power. And this, specifically, there's one woman who seems to stand at the forefront of the action, and her name is Deborah. And then there's another lesser woman who who um, kills this commanding officer that we read about, and her name is, is J.L. So, in verses 4-10, through 10, we see Deborah's wisdom. Deborah is called, in verse 4, a prophetess. A prophetess. She is one of several prophetesses in the Bible. Miriam is one, Exodus 15. Huldah is one in 2 Kings 22. Noadiah in Nehemiah 6. Isaiah's wife, remember, in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah chapter 8, and then Anna in the New Testament, Luke chapter 2. And she is a prophetess in the sense that she speaks on behalf of God. That's what a prophet was. A prophet was a person who spoke on behalf of God. She happened to be a woman who did this. Notice verse 6. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord God of Israel has commanded. So see, she's speaking on behalf of God. She's giving a word to this man, Barak, on behalf of God. God has commanded you to do something. I'm giving you a word from God. Now you have to understand that this is very important for her to be here at this time in the life of Israel. Because throughout this 350-year period of Judges, there are only two prophets that are mentioned in the entire book. One is Deborah, and the other is an unnamed prophet in chapter 6 that comes to Gideon. So, other than these two times, and the angel of the Lord coming two times, he comes to Gideon, and the angel of the Lord comes to, remember the other time? Samson's parents. Those are the only two times we have the angel of the Lord coming. So we have the prophet two times and the angel of the Lord coming two times. Other than that, there was no word from the Lord. And so the fact that Deborah was here was actually a good thing. Four times in this 350 years, we have a record of the people of Israel hearing from God audibly. And this probably was due in large measure to Israel's indifference to God's Word. They didn't want to hear what God had to say to them. In Amos chapter 7, verses 10 to 15, Amaziah asked for silence. He didn't want to hear what the prophet of God had to say. Go away from here. You keep giving us bad prophecies. We don't want to hear that anymore. Normally, in times of distress, Israel would turn to the Lord for a prophetic word of hope and of guidance. But but now what Amaziah would learn in Amos chapter 7, actually 
they find, he finds out in Amos chapter 8 is that God was going to give them a famine. And it wasn't going to be a famine from food. They weren't going to be short on food. It was going to be a famine of God's Word. Listen to Amos 8.11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but, but rather for hearing the words of God. And I think what's going on here in the book of Judges as a whole as Israel continues to turn away from God is that God is sending a famine of His Word so that they recognize how important it is not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so Deborah comes at an important time in order to speak God's Word to the people of Israel, specifically to Barak. So she is a prophetess. She's also a judge. Look at the end of verse 4. She was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah, excuse me, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came to her for judgment. It's, it's a similar to picture, picture to what happens with Solomon, that people would come from all over to hear their case uh, before wise King Solomon. Deborah is that kind of a person. She's the wisest in the land, apparently, that people, she would just sit under a tree and people would come to her and have their their issues brought before him, uh, her, that they would have their disputes settled uh, with great wisdom by this woman. We're introduced to the second main character in verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6. Now, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali. Deborah here calls for Barak, and she tells him what the Lord had said. And the second part of that verse says, Behold, the Lord God of Israel has commanded. And then she goes on to tell him what the Lord said. We have God's Word coming from an unlikely source. We wouldn't expect God to give His Word to a woman and have her pass it on to other people, much less the commander of their army. And at the end of verse 6, she tells him exactly what to do. She says, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun, and I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. She knew exactly what to do. Why? Because she was getting the word from the Lord. This is what God has commanded you to do. Go take 10,000 men to this Kishon River Valley, and, and uh, that river valley is going to be empty because they were in dry season. So take them there and I'll draw out Jabin's army through Sisera was the, was the commanding officer. I'll draw out Canaan's army to you. Now, Barak isn't quite sure that that's the way to go. Look at verse 8. Or at least he's a little bit reluctant to go. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, it sounds like Barak is very passive here. And here's where we can turn Barak into a whipping post. Uh, but before we do, we need to consider two things. Number one, what other means could Barak use to hear God's Word than Deborah? What other means do you think he had other than Deborah to hear God's Word? Okay, then number two, 
Hebrews 11 lists him as a man of faith. The writer of Hebrews says, I don't have time to talk to you about other men of faith like Samson and Barak and so on. And so he's listed as a man of faith. So before we we just go off on him and say he's passive and he's allowing the woman to lead and so on, I think we actually need to see him as a man of faith that he wanted to hear God speak and he recognized that God was speaking through this woman since she was a prophetess. So we do have to give him some credit that he was wanting to hear God speak and that he didn't want to go into battle without God's Word being with him. So that as he went into battle, he had right next to him Deborah, which effectively was God's Word to him. And if we think about it, we have to give him some credit because he was willing to fight, even though he was going to have to defy some serious odds against him. He was going to have to defy the armies of Canaan with their 900 and and defeat, the 900 iron chariots which Israel was no match for. And so in that sense, he was a man of faith. He wanted to hear God's Word and and he, he went up against a seemingly improbable foe. And now the next verse, we need to think about this carefully. So let, let me read the next verse and then I'll say how we normally think about this. She said, Deborah to Barak, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Now we tend to look at this verse and say, this is Deborah rebuking Barak. He's a weak man, he's passive, and because you weren't willing to take the lead, here's your punishment. You're not going to get the honor. Instead, a woman's going to get the honor. By the way, which women actually got the honor? Was it Deborah? No, it was actually Jael, right? It was a different woman, and we're going to find out that she's actually an evil woman. So, so what, what uh, Deborah was not saying is that when you do well, you'll get the honor. She was saying, keep in mind, Barak, even if you do this, you won't get the credit. So as you're going into battle, here's something that may be a disincentive for you. You're not going to get the credit for it. Someone else is going to. When people sing of the praises of the, of the victory that's going to happen, they're not going to be thinking of you. They're going to be thinking of a, another woman. And so again, what we see here, I think, is Barak humbly and faith in a faith-filled way going after what God told him to do through this woman, this prophetess, and, and defying the odds from a human standpoint and being willing to submit himself to God's purposes, even though there was no credit that would come to him. This is a great act of faith on the part of Barak. He was willing to humble himself in order to give glory to another. There's much we can learn from his example. Well, in verse 10, he heads to battle with a few other tribes who would have been affected by the oppression, the two tribes that God called for him to to bring along with him, Naphtali and Zebulun. From these two tribes, he was able to gather 10,000 men as he was told to do. Verse 11 reads, Now Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zanaim, 
which is near Kedesh. Here we're introduced to another character in this narrative, and his name is Heber. Heber was a member of the tribe of Moses' father-in-law, but apparently he had betrayed Israel and had later become an ally of the Canaanites. He had, he had, he had betrayed Israel, and now he was living on the borders of where most of the Israel, Israel's population was and started making friends with the Canaanites. His role is going to become very important later in the story, and you'll see how that comes to play here in just a second. In verses 12 to 16, we see the Lord's victory. The strategy was to draw the Canaanites. Remember verse 7? Draw the Canaanites into the Kishon River Valley, which is dry. Draw them all into there with all their chariots, and this is exactly what they do. And apparently when they do this, these 10,000 men gather to this river valley, and Heber, this man that we just met in verse 11, leaks the information or or finds out the information somehow and, and leaks it to Sisera, passes it on to Sisera so that Sisera knows where Israel now is. And now he's coming on the attack. Verse 12, then, then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinuam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So this is part of the strategy to bring Canaan to this river valley. And the strategy works. Sisera comes out, according to verse 13, with 900 chariots. It's, it's mentioned again to, I think, emphasize how, how, uh, how much of a Goliath-like advantage they had. 900 iron chariots. Instead of just saying he brought his chariots, these 10,000 troops were no match for these chariots. And so they come out just as the strategy uh, was designed. Verse 14, Deborah says it's time. She says, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord, in verse 15, we learn, is the one who routed Sisera and his army. But Sisera got away. Verse 15, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, there's no details given here about how they won this battle. We know that they brought them to the Kishon River Valley with all their iron chariots, but we don't know how they won until we get to chapter 5. Turn over there, chapter 5, verse 21. As they're singing this song that I, I think Deborah wrote about how God gave them victory, we learn about how Israel defeated Canaan. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. Sisera would not have come to the Kishon River Valley during rainy season, it was too dangerous. But what Sisera didn't know was that even during the dry season, God was on Israel's side. God was in control of the skies no matter what the season. And so we learn from this song in verse 21 that God unleashes apparently a a torrential downpour that flooded the area. And what would that do to these 900 chariots that gave Canaan the advantage? fills up this river valley, the very first place that this water would collect would be in the river valley. 
And it causes the chariots to be stuck in the mud, to be hamstrung. And it tells us this gave Israel now the advantage. That they now came with their 10,000 troops down from the hills into the valley and they just destroyed Canaan because they were not prepared to do hand-to-hand combat apparently. And no one, look at the end of verse, go back to chapter 4, verse 16. No one, not even one, was left. All of the troops were destroyed. The only one that got away was Sisera. Sisera took off on his chariot and he went as far as he could on the chariot and then he, he booked it on his, on his feet. He got away and started to head... Uh, started to head far away from where the battle was. But God, again, found him and used what I, would, what I think is an evil woman to stop his progress and really to stop the, the progress of the Canaanites as a whole. We learn about this in verses 17 through 22. Here, the narrative slows down. There's a lot of things going on in the first 16 verses. We're meeting new people. We see all these things, just one event after another. Even the battle happens really quickly. And then all of a sudden, verses 17 through 22, we have this slow, this thing that takes place in a very short period of time where Jael invites him, him into her tent and he asks for a drink. And it's really starting to slow down the narrative. What's the point of this? It's very much like with the death of Eglon. That, that God is showing, He's making the point here that He uses an unlikely woman to destroy a mighty commander. And He uses a woman by the name of Jael, the wife of Heber. Remember Heber in verse 11? He was the spy or the, the betrayer, the traitor who, who leaked information to Sisera. And now he has a good relationship with Heber and his household. And so when Jael sees uh, Sisera running away from the battle, she says, here's a place of safety. Come on in. Look at verse 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said, turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. And he turned aside into her tent and she covered him with a rug or with a covering. And we know this is of the Lord because of verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. She said, this is Deborah talking to Barak, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of the woman who is behind Sisera ending up in Jael's tent. Ultimately. As the Lord. Sisera provides a place, uh, uh, excuse me, Jael provides a place of refuge for Sisera, at least what he thought was a place of refuge. He comes to her tent because there's a peace that's between Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, and Heber, this traitor, and she provides a place of safety for him and a cloak of safety. And she's probably doing this act that we're going to find out about, that we're, that we're going to look at, out of her own personal interest. She's not probably thinking about God's glory. 
and about Israel getting out from underneath oppression, she's probably figuring out a way in which she can can earn favor with with uh, Barak. And so she covers him with the cloak of safety, verse 18, and she gives him milk instead of water to drink, which perhaps would have made him drowsy. And then verse 21, the narrative really slows down and tells us that she drove a tent peg through his head. Apparently the women in the ancient Near East were responsible to put up the tents and so she would have been very efficient and, and, um, and very good with hammering in tent pegs. Now we might think of this act as very cruel, but think about what, what, what Canaan was doing to Israel for the last 20 years. They were oppressing God's people. So God points this out to show that He brings justice for His people. And He does it through unlikely means, unlikely circumstances. No one would ever expect that an that an uh, unimportant, un, uh, unknown woman would defeat, in one sense, the commanding officer of one of the greatest armies in the area. And so when she kills him, verse 21, then she finds out that Barak is coming. Barak, remember, is chasing after Sisera, ready to take him down and finish the job that he started. And he finally comes to the tent of Jael and she's happy to report that he is dead. And notice who gets the credit in verse 23. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. We... We have this promise in verse 9 that God was going to give Sisera into the hands of Israel, into the hand of a woman specifically. And then verse 23 says that it was God that subdued Jabin on that day. With all of the, the, the events that are going on, all the various characters that are involved in the story, and at the end of it all, what we find out is that God is the exclusive deliverer. In verses 23 and 24, we have a summary conclusion. Verse 24 reads, The hands of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So, chapter 4 is the story of God's deliverance through a woman, primarily this godly woman, Deborah. And then chapter 5 is the song of God's deliverance through this godly woman, Deborah. First part of the, the song is uh, explains for us the reason for praise. Why ought we to praise God? And it is because God deserves all the glory. Notice verse 1, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day. Sang. Now, the word sang is, is feminine, singular, in the Hebrew language. Now, that doesn't maybe mean a whole lot to us in the English language, but in the Hebrew language you can tell who the subject of a verb is based on what the, uh, uh, based on what the verb, the tense and the, and the uh, gender of the verb. And so in this case it's a feminine verb which indicates that, this, that the subject of the word sang is actually Deborah. Then Deborah sang on that day is the idea. Barak is just really a footnote or an aside. We could say it like this. Then Deborah, along with Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day. And the events that are recorded here 
seem to be coming from Deborah. The theme of the song is God's deliverance, that God delivers His people through ordinary means and extraordinary means. And so notice we see the the main point of the song, verse 2, that the leaders led in Israel, that the, the people volunteered, bless the Lord. Here's one of the main points. Bless the Lord. Look at verse 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. What's the point of it? It is to praise God. Go back to verse 3. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. So bless the Lord. Praise the Lord, verse 3. Bless the Lord, verse 9. It's all about God's deliverance and praise belonging to Him. This is where Deborah focuses all the attention. All the attention. The story of God's deliverance of Israel from Canaan is about God, and the song of God's deliverance from Canaan is about God. Verses 4 and 5, we, she sings about God's deliverance in distant, in distant history. God's deliverance in distant history. Lord, verse 4, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked. The heavens also dripped. This is talking about from the wilderness. You, you went out from the wilderness. Even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. Canaan now is in the promised land following the conquest. So what Deborah is reminding the people about is how God delivered them through the conquest. That He brought them from the wilderness here in Edom to where they are now, to a place of rest in a sense. And God had the victory in that conquest. God's power in victory is seen in verses 6-11. through 11. God's power in victory. They, could, they, they should consider what, where they had been and where God had led them. Look at verse 11. It should result in great praise. At the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places... There they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds of His peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Verse 9 says, Bless the Lord. The result should be praise. Verses 12-18, through Israel testifies of victory and is used by God for victory. And in verses 13 and following, we have all the tribes listed. Well, most of them. Some of the tribes are are sharing in the joy of the victory, like Ephraim and Benjamin and West Manasseh, which is Maker, and Zebulun and Issachar and Naphtali. But then there are other tribes listed in verses 15 and 16 that uh, did not respond. And the princes, verse 15, of Issachar were with Deborah, as was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels among the divisions of Reuben. They were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping of the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. But, verse 17, Gilead remained across the Jordan. Why did Dan stand ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. So, here we have a group of people who were not really interested in coming to help, coming to aid the aid of Israel, and Deborah points that out. A couple of troops or a couple of tribes, I should say, that are not mentioned at all. Judah and Simeon are not mentioned. Neither is Levi. Of course, Levi wasn't responsible for battles, but Judah and Simeon maybe were involved in some other battle, and so we're we're giving given a free pass in this one. But but apparently these other tribes 
were condemned for not being a part of this victory that God was bringing. In verses 19 through 23, we have God's deliverance in recent history through extraordinary means. Verse 19, this is talking about this battle that we just looked at in chapter 4. The kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Taanach near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder and silver. Notice verse 20, the stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The stars fought from heaven. This is a poetic way of saying that God was fighting from the heavens. It's as if the heavens were on our side. And specifically, how were they on our side? Well, verse 21, remember we already looked at this, it's through the rains that came from the heavens, from the stars. So the credit, again, doesn't go to Deborah or Jael or Barak. It goes to the weather, which is controlled by whom? And so God's deliverance comes in recent history in this victory. And He does it in verses 24 through 27 through unlikely means. While Deborah prophesied that Jael would get the honor, she is likely not an Israelite and likely not a believer. And she does an apparent wicked act. And yet she's mentioned here because God even gets the praise when good things happen through the evil acts of men. God gets praise even when when He accomplishes good through the evil acts of men, like at the cross. Like with Joseph. See, God even gets praise because He brings about good in the worst of circumstances. Verse 27, Between her feet He bowed, He fell, He lay. Between her feet He bowed, He fell. Where He bowed, there He fell dead. Some of this um, this song is hard to imagine that we would ever sing. Look at verse 26, She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she smashed his head and she shattered and pierced his temple. Not exactly something we would sing about, but again, this is God delivering His people. And verse 27 is talking about a metaphor of how easily she was able to kill Him. It's as if she fell at His feet. Obviously, that's not what happened. Remember, it says in the text in chapter 4 that He was sleeping. He was fast asleep. She gave Him the milk. He fell asleep and she sneaks up on Him and puts the tent peg through His temple. But Deborah speaks of it as if It was the easiest of things to do. Again, that points back to God just gifting this evil commanding officer into her hands. And then verses 28 through 30 talk about the worry of a waiting mother. Out of the window she looked, speaking of Sisera's mother, and lamented the mother of Sisera through the lattice. Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariots tarry? Her wise princesses would answer her. Instead, she repeats her words to herself. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidered, dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoiler. The mother of Sisera is waiting back at her tent, waiting for Sisera to come back from this battle. Mom, I'm going to be back soon. I'm going to defeat Israel here. And she's where is he? Should be dividing the spoil by now? Maybe that's what's delaying him. So we get a further sense of, of how devastating this was for her and really 
how unimaginable it was that a that Canaan would lose to such a small, insignificant army who didn't have the latest technology and weaponry. Verse 31 finishes, Deborah finishes her song with the universal call for praising God. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love Him be like the rising of the sun in its might. Who can stop the rising of the sun? Who can keep it from from rising into the sky. And obviously the, the answer to that is no one. And so Deborah says, let all the people who trust in God be just like that, to have that kind of power. That, that, that those who love God would be so strong that it breaks through all of the seeming impossibilities in our life. This victory was not a result of Deborah's wisdom, although that played a part. This victory was not a result of Barak's genius and his faith, although that played a part. It was not a result of Jael's cunning, although that played a part. It was ultimately a result of what we read. And I'm just going to go back through the text and remind you that this was all of God. Look back at chapter 4, verse 9. I just want to want you to see how in this text it weaves into the text over and over again. This is this is all God. In verse six, we already saw that it was God who commanded them to go to this place. Verse nine, she said, "I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman." It's God who gets the credit. Verse fourteen. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. Verse 15, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his armies with the edge of the sword before Barak. Verse 23, So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And then chapter 5, verse 20, The stars fought from heaven. It was this torrential downpour that was that was in many ways the hero of the story that provided the victory for Israel in an unlikely way. And so when we look at an event like this, we have to acknowledge that God doesn't need Israel's help, does He? God doesn't need Israel's help. He can accomplish His purposes through the weakest people in society from their perspective. He can accomplish His purposes through evil people. He can accomplish His purposes through, the, through, through affecting the weather. God can accomplish His purposes apart from His people. And yet, God graciously includes a couple of people who trust Him. A couple of people who are concerned for His glory like Deborah and Barak. What about today? Does God need us to win people to Christ? Does God need us to disciple other believers? Does God need us to advance His name? And in one sense, the answer is no. But in another sense, the answer is yes. The answer is no in that God can do anything He pleases. He can raise up other people to accomplish those same purposes that that we may think we, He needs us for. So if someone 
that we know needs to come to Christ and we're not willing to go to that person and speak the Gospel, cannot God raise up some or many people to take the Gospel to that person? Absolutely. What about discipling? Can God disciple even people in this church apart from us? If we're unwilling, can God raise up other people in the church to disciple people? Absolutely. But God doesn't necessarily need us. But He does need us in another sense in that He has promised to use weak people, and I would say like us, to accomplish great things on this earth. Things that will last longer than this earth. Things that will have an eternal weight of glory. That will have eternal value. And that is the bringing of people to Christ, the advancing of God's name in this area, the, 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 um, the godliness or the pursuit of holiness as we seek to raise up believers to greater levels of glory through our encouragement and through our prayers. God doesn't necessarily need us, but He's happy to use people like us. People that don't have the greatest background, that don't have the greatest speaking ability, that don't have the greatest people ability. God's happy to use people like us to accomplish His purposes, to reach people for Christ, to disciple people in their walk with God and to advance His name. Aren't you thankful that God is willing and desirous to use people like us even though He lacks nothing. God is happy to use people like us. And that's because God is the exclusive deliverer. He will ultimately get the credit. In our weakness, He he finds great strength. And He receives great glory. God is the exclusive deliverer and delights to use weak and flawed people to accomplish His purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You use the foolishness of the cross to confound the wise. And You use us who don't uh, necessarily have the greatest background in many cases. We don't have the greatest education. We have been prone to wander. And yet You have used us to encourage believers, to strengthen them in their faith. You've used us to bring people to Christ and I anticipate that you will do so as we move forward. Help us to get out of the way and let you be glorified, to step aside and allow you to receive the credit that is due to your name. And Lord, you have so many uh, unique ways in which you do that. We certainly would love to see you, your name advance. We'd love to see people come to Christ and, and be discipled and to grow in their godliness. And in many times we pursue one way and yet you bring about in a different way. But we pray that you would use us, whatever the case. Help us to humbly seek your will and to do it. And really the humility comes down to whether we're willing to obey your word or not. Whether we're willing to just submit ourselves, to bow our knees to what your word says. It's very difficult in this age to submit our will to your word because there are so many other solutions, so to speak, in this world. So many other 
uh, ways in which people can accomplish the purposes they want, and yet we have a responsibility to humbly follow what you have told us to do. And the reason that it requires humility is because it comes from a book that has been written over a couple thousand years ago, finished during that time, and over 1,500 years total it took to write, and many different authors and some people may look at it in our day as antiquated and irrelevant, but we trust that it is relevant and that it is important for our growth and our godliness, and it provides for us the instruction that we need to lead people to you and to advance your name through this church as we seek to make disciples of this church and to make disciples of all nations. Lord, accomplish great things through us as your unlikely and weak servants. May you shape us to be more like you and to, to do your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.